You can turn to John 18 if you'd like to. This morning we bring to an end this wonderful series on the I Am Statements. Wonderful because it's all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is when he says I am. And it's exciting to me that we can go through these wonderful statements of Christ and focus on them and see what he has to say specifically about himself. These are claims that Jesus makes about himself. It's not just Paul talking or Peter talking about who Jesus is. It's Jesus talking about Jesus and saying wonderful things about himself. John chapter 18 is where we're at, and this certainly brings to a climax what we were talking about in terms of who Jesus is, and it's, it's just a, a fitting end in so many ways to what he is trying to say about himself. And this is not actually one of the classic I am statements that people usually consider. Usually people talk about there being seven I am statements, but I really think there are more than that, and I think that this is one of them. So John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, we'll read through this and then we'll uh, see what, what this holds for us today. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And this was uh, off the hill from Jerusalem. He was up on the mount in Jerusalem itself. Then he goes outside the city walls and then down through a valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And I don't think I say anything about this later, but I don't think that Peter was going for the ear. What do you think? The guy's a fisherman. He's not a military man. He swings a sword, and he can't hit the guy's neck and lop off his head the way he wants to, and so he just gets the ear. So Simon Peter had a sword, <clears throat> drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then verse 12 says, And the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that today this uh, culmination of our series on the I am statements, that we would drink deeply from this. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand not only who you are, but what it is that you long for us because of who you are. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. I don't know if this is a fitting rendition or not of what this looks like, I tried to make this a little bit bigger and fill the screen, but it just got pretty fuzzy, so I left it this size. But I want you to notice here the way that people are falling down. 
In fact, it's interesting. There's people back behind Jesus who are falling down, but the, the two or three or four guys in front of Jesus are not just falling down. They are blown away. Do you see this? It's like Jesus is a wrecking ball. <laughs> Completely knocks them off their feet. They don't just kind of fall back like, oh, but are instead absolutely blown away. And I don't know all that's going on here, but it just seems to me appropriate to talk about it in these terms. What I want to do here is look at a few things that go on in this text and then get to what I think is really the point. And it has an awful lot to do actually with what I think is expressed in this painting. So first of all, I would say something like this. Jesus and his followers would have been experiencing blood. And that might surprise you a little bit that I would put it exactly that way. But here's what I think was happening. This is the Passover. And during Passover time, there were lots of people who would come to Jerusalem. The city would swell. And one of the things that would happen is that there would be literally thousands of lambs that would be slain around the temple. And the blood shed. And the question is, where's all that blood going to go? Because with the thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs, that were killed. I read one commentator who said that they have record of one Passover where 265,000 lambs were killed at Passover time in Jerusalem. That's a lot of blood. Now, I don't know if that's always the case. Maybe that was an unusually high year, but let's just cut that by 50%. And there's only 132 and a half or something like that. Percent, uh, thousand rams or lambs that were killed. If that's the case, it's a lot of blood. And where's the blood going to go? And I don't know, I'm no authority on the city of Jerusalem and what would happen in terms of blood running downhill from a mountain top where Jerusalem's located. It's got to run somewhere. One commentator said that the main place it ran was through the Kidron Valley, the very place that Jesus crosses to go over to the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now what that means is that Jesus as he leaves from the Last Supper and heads down out of the city of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, would be exposed to masses, potentially, of blood in the stream that runs down through the Kidron Valley. That's telling. That is significant. The genuine Passover lamb would have seen the connection between the blood that runs in the Kidron Valley and the blood that in a very short time is going to run from his own body. Well, they go to the place of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was used by Jesus as a place of quiet rest. The text says that they, had, they went there often. It's a good possibility that this garden was owned by someone wealthy, perhaps somebody who actually allowed the disciples and Christ to enter through a gate. Not all the details are known. But if that's a possibility, then Jesus is going there perhaps because it's a bit private, a place where he can go with his disciples and experience some rest. And I don't think that this morning we should miss the irony that this place that was supposed to be a place of rest ends up being a place of incredible anxiety, a place where Jesus himself sheds blood in prayer, thinking about what it is that he's about to experience. There were likely as many as 200 soldiers who came to arrest Jesus. Some, like potentially there were more than that. The, the, the words for the, for the Roman soldiers especially that are listed here along with the temple guards and the Jewish officials that were there, 
that could go as high as 600. I don't think that they probably sent 600 people out to arrest 11. But some commentators would indicate that it was potentially as high as 200. That would have been a kind of common number that they would have sent out for a group that they regarded as rebellious. And they wouldn't want to be able to, they wouldn't want to tolerate or put up with any kind of widespread rebellion. They would have wanted to quell that immediately. And so as many as 200 people came to arrest Jesus. And when they came, the text says they were expecting battle. They brought torches to indicate their, perhaps, night. They're no doubt wanting to be able to see what they're doing. And they bring weapons. They're ready and armed. And it's not... uh, I mean, everybody knows that Peter himself was, was armed, and it looks as though some of the other apostles are armed as well. It says, what are we going to do with our swords, Lord? Should we use them? And Jesus says, no, but Peter uses his anyway. And again, Peter was expecting himself battle to protect Jesus and to protect the cause, to protect the kind of things that Jesus said he was doing. And it shows not only the faith and the courage of those who were ready to die with him, but also the misunderstanding, as they simply didn't understand really what Jesus was all about. Well, in the midst of all of that, Willow, thank you, ma'am, Jesus showed courage and resolve and loving protection of those whom he loved. And, you know, it's not as though when these guys came out uh, that they have to go find Jesus. The band of the apostles in Christ don't scurry off through the garden trying to get away. They're not trying to hide. And Jesus himself stands right up. Who is it that you're looking for, he says. And it's interesting way that Jesus takes absolute control of the situation. You've got a Roman garrison that's come out. You've got temple guards that are there. You've got Pharisees that are there. You've got officials that have been sent by the Sanhedrin. And Jesus stands up in the midst of all of that, in the midst of his agony, having prayed and sweat drops of blood only moments before, and he takes complete control of the situation. And they don't, for a moment, have control of him because Jesus says, I don't have my life taken from me. I give it up myself. And it's absolutely Jesus' own initiative and in the context of his own power that he gives it up. And then you notice in verse 9, it says, this happened so that the words that have been spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus didn't want to lose any of those that had been given to him. And he makes sure that the soldiers don't uh, go after the apostles, but that it's Jesus himself on whom they focus. And then I want you to notice this. In English... It says, I am he. But the exact same words are used here as what have been used in all of the I am statements. So I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the gate, and I am the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine. In every case, when Jesus uses those words, He says simply, ego eimi, and here he says exactly the same thing. Now, the reason it works is because it's simply an identifying kind of phrase. It's like someone says, well, are you Kelly? And I say, well, I am. I don't have to say I am he, and in this context, you wouldn't have to say I am he, and in in Greek, it really does work to simply say I am. 
He says it also, you'll notice, at least twice. We've seen several times with the I am statements that when Jesus says these I am statements, he oftentimes says them twice. No doubt because he's trying to stress something. And in this case, trying to stress exactly who he is before those who've come to arrest him. Well, here's what I want us to really see today. In verse 6, the army that came to arrest him, the text says, moved away backward. That's the best way to say this in English, I think. They moved away backward, and then the text says, they fell to the ground. And what I want to ask this morning is, why? Why is it that they move away and fall to the ground? Is it surprise? Are they absolutely shocked that all of a sudden it's Jesus? I wouldn't think so. They've come out with as many as 200 people, basically with an army. They're, they're armed for battle. They've got torches in their hand, leaders among them, ready to possibly squelch a rebellion. I don't think they'd be surprised when Jesus stands up and says, it's me. Here I am. Or it is I, proper English. Here I am. Why would they fall down when Jesus stood up to say, here I am? Surprise doesn't seem to me like that fits the bill. What about fear? Could they simply be scared to death? They had seen him work miracles. They'd seen, some people had seen him feed 5,000 people. He had raised some of the dead. He had healed many people with diseases and cast out demons. And these things were not done in the corner. They weren't done in secret. The Pharisees all knew. That's why they're there. The Roman soldiers, I'm convinced, had heard that's why they're there. They understand the power that's present. So it could be that it's fear. But I don't know that, it, let's say there's only 100 there, soldiers, against the 11. I'm not sure there would be real reason for them to be afraid. In fact, the Roman soldiers were used to situations like this. They had wonder workers come before. You know what they do with wonder workers who come along? They arrest them along with their bands and they crucify them along the road. And nobody in hundreds of years has stopped them from that. And so I doubt that these hardened, trained military personnel who've seen more battles and more death than you and I can imagine are going to anyway be afraid of this carpenter who comes out of the garden and says, I'm here. And so I think the best answer comes in terms of what we've been looking at with the question or the statement, I am. It may be that the soldiers didn't understand. I wouldn't expect the average Roman soldier to be tracking all of the words of Jesus. I don't think they would understand what I am is all about. But I think the temple guard would get it. And I think the Pharisees would get it. I think the officials from the high priest would get it. And when Jesus says, I am, something happens to those people. And when they fall down, they fall down in response to what they think could possibly be behind this one who is speaking. 
It may be that this is just one of those God things where God steps in and he does it to them. Maybe God, right there in that moment, knocks them all down in light of the fact that his son is saying, I am. And it's a poignant moment. The son is about to be crucified. The father knows that. The spirit knows that. The son knows that. And it wouldn't surprise me if a moment like that, God simply did something to bowl them completely over. And here's the reason. It's because you don't stand in the presence of God. And when Jesus said, I am here, I am he, now what are you going to do about it? People don't stand in the presence of God. They fall on their faces before God. He is about to be crucified, but he's the one who's in absolutely a position of power and control. And again, when he dies, he lays down his own life. And those who stand in his presence and hear him say, I am, are, have to be struck by some sense of majesty and can do nothing but fall down. And that raises, I think, a question for us. When we started this series on the I am statements, I showed you a slide like this one that first said, Jesus, because he is I am in human form, is the center, core, and principal meaning of all creation, and certainly for humanity. And we've seen this through every one of the lessons that Jesus is, in fact, the center for all of humanity. And that's why he can say, I am. Because he is absolutely the being one. He is the meaning of all existence. And we need to understand that. That when he makes that claim, I am, that he says to us, I'm the meaning for all of your existence. I'm the core of it all for you. Second thing I showed on that slide was that believing in him as I am is the crucial human choice. And that leaves us this morning with a choice. What are we going to do with this one? Is this going to be some casual relationship that we have with the one who says I am? Is this going to be a, a relationship where we can kind of set him aside at some moments and then embrace him at others? Is this going to be a time where we can just come and meet him every Sunday morning have some conversation with others and with him? Not if he is the center and the core and the principal meaning of all creation and certainly for all of humanity. If that's the case, then believing in him as I am is indeed the crucial choice. And we need to decide not just once whether we're going to be his, but it needs to be one that we decide forever and continually and that dominates who we are. And part of the reason for this is the third thing that was on that slide, and that is this choice leads to truth and life, and there is no other choice like it. We choose this one, and in doing so, we choose truth and we choose life, and we have then the abundant life that Jesus says that he would offer us when he says, I am. So the question this morning is really, what do we do with all of this? 
What does this mean to you? What kind of choice are you going to make in response to who Jesus is? If this was a different kind of choice, let's imagine that somebody was giving you an amazing opportunity. You wake up one morning and you open your email and and it says, there's a bank account with $5 million in in Nigeria just waiting for you. Maybe you've had that email. But let's imagine that it was true. Let's imagine that you did some verification and you determined that whatever the story was, that somehow it was true. And there was the opportunity of a lifetime that all of a sudden just come to you out of the blue. And all you have to do is accept it. What are you going to do? No one in their right mind, no one would be so foolish to refuse. And Jesus, as the I am, offers to us the opportunity of a lifetime. In fact, it is the only opportunity, the only key, crucial, center, core opportunity of a lifetime. When he says, I am. And so for Christians, this means that we have to take more seriously than ever the claims that Jesus made and allow them to have all the impact on our lives that Jesus wants to have. And it means for those who have not yet given their lives to Christ that they do have a choice to make. A choice needs to be made. What do I do with the one who says, I am? Will I come to him? Will I be his? And so will you allow Jesus at whatever station of life you're in today, will you allow him to be Lord? Will you allow him to be I am? For that's who he surely is and wants to be for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, I am. You are the existent one. You are the being one. You, together with your Father and the Holy Spirit, you're what is ultimately real in our world for all. You're the ultimate of existence. And so we thank you and praise you for the privilege we have of being able to come and even speak before you today. What must it have been like for you? The I am, the Lord of the universe, to stand before a group of soldiers knowing what is about to happen and to allow it all take place. Oh, for that we praise you and we thank you. Help us, each one, Father, to give our lives completely to you. We pray through Christ. Amen.